0: In the name of the Father and of the Son and Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So last week we spoke about the significance of preaching by our model, by the example that we live, and our words as well. So uh, we spoke about how the Samaritan woman went back to Samaria and actually shared with people what she learned, and she shared with people her faith. She She said, come see a man that told me all things that I've ever done. And She spoke to people, and I I think that was a concept that is hard for us to uh, actually implement and and to try to navigate through in in our uh, complicated life because it's hard to actually speak to people about God, but uh, that was just an important factor to keep in mind as we try to progress in our faith, that uh, we we do need to actually share with people what we believe by our words as much as our example. All right, so it's basically what we uh, concluded with um, last week. Any comments or questions about that? All right. So let's start reading from verse 39 to 42. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. All right, so we can see a lot from what the Samaritan woman did. She didn't just try to convince people that this is the savior of the world by her own words alone. Like her objective was to direct people to Christ, and then, because they tasted Christ personally, then they believed. And they even say, well, you you led us to Christ, so that was good, but that's not really why we believe. We believe because we heard His voice for ourselves. And that's important because in our walk with Christ, the experiences of others can only take us so far. You know, it's not like you can do a faith transplant. Like, you know how now you can have... uh, heart transplants or lung transplants, whatever type of transplant, you can't do a faith transplant in the spiritual life. The, the saints can motivate us, they can inspire us. Like when we learn about someone like St. Pope Corollos, uh, and I was just talking to uh, a few people about the retreat last week and how uh, meditating on the life of someone like St. Pope Krollus is just so motivating because you see how he lived his life. But that can never really translate to a real personal relationship with God unless it becomes my own experience. Right? Like, as beautiful as Saint Pope Carlos' faith was for him, that's not my faith. That's not my personal intimate experience with Christ. Okay, so the testimony or the experiences of others can only take us so far. We have to experience Christ and hear His voice for ourselves, if we want our relationship with him to be real, right? So Origen quotes Herakulian, he says, people believe in the Savior first by being led by people, but whenever they read his words, they no longer believe because of human testimony alone, but because of the truth itself, right? And, and because they tasted the sweetness of his voice, they urged him to stay even longer, it's just like, uh, if you're not really hungry, but then, you know, your mom's cooking ruzum ul and lachma, and then, like, she just uh, puts a little bit in front of you, you get a little taste, and you're like, wait, I'm actually hungry, and I want a little bit more, right? So, that's how the spiritual life works as well. Like, you just get a little taste, and then you want more, and they urged him to stay even longer, Okay, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Right, so the question we have to ask ourselves is if we truly taste Christ to the extent of urging him to give us more. Because if you get a good taste, you want more. Right? And if you're not asking for more, you've got to wonder if that first taste was adequate. Otherwise, there's a problem. If you don't want more, then... Maybe the little bite you took wasn't much for you, right? So we have to ask ourselves if we're constantly desiring God more and more and more every day. And if our desire continually increases for God, that means we're growing in our faith. Even if we go through like, those moments of dryness and emptiness and we're struggling, at least we want to desire God more. Like our desire may be limited but at least deep down inside we want to desire more and that's what really matters all right any comments questions any thoughts about all that all right so in verse 42 they said to the woman now we believe not because of what you said for we ourselves have heard him and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Right, so that last little phrase, that title, the Savior of the world, is interesting because it doesn't appear often in, this, in the gospel accounts. Right, so how many times do you think this is mentioned in the gospel? For St. John, this is actually the only time that it appears. And then it appears one other time in the Gospel according to St. Luke. right? And that's in chapter 2, uh, whenever Gabriel says, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Right? So, the reason this isn't mentioned often, because to say Jesus the Savior is quite redundant. Like, what does the word Jesus mean? It means Savior. Like Yeshua, the Savior. Or technically, it's God saves. Savior. Alright? right? So that's why you don't typically see Jesus the Savior. Okay? And so, this only appears here, and uh, as I mentioned in the Gospel, according to St. Luke in chapter 2. So, it has a deeper implication whenever you actually look at the context around this title. Because it doesn't appear often. So for St. John to mention it here, implies there must be a hidden meaning or a significance behind it. Okay, so we can only understand that meaning whenever we look at the context of the passage. Okay, so typically this title, Savior, was attributed to the emperor. Okay, so Caesar, for example, was considered the savior of Rome, right? So the emperor was always considered the savior. Now, the emperor was considered the savior because he preserved the peace and the unity of the empire. Like he was the savior of the land because he kept everything... In line, he kept the order, he kept the peace, he kept the unity. All right, so Christ is the savior of the world in this context because he is the one who unites and preserves the peace of the land in the context of this passage here where you see there's all of this background of tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. Okay, so this title as the Savior, the one who preserves the peace and the unity, just like Caesar, Caesar is considered the Savior because he preserves the, the peace and the unity of the Roman Empire. So here, he's the Savior because it's only in him that the land is united, and it's only in him that we have peace. Right? And obviously, like, we spoke about all of the the background tension between the Jews and the Samaritans because there was a, a lot of history, like a lot of resentment, a lot of bitterness and animosity. But in Christ, all of that disappears. All of those barriers disappear. And that's why he's the savior of the world. It's not just the Jews, but Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans, everyone. Okay, so he's the one that preserves the peace and the unity of the land and unites both Jews and Gentiles together. All right? Any comments, questions about that? Pretty straightforward? All right. Let's go to the next three verses. We'll read from 43 to 45. Now after the two days he departed He departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they also had gone to the feast. All right. So when did... Jesus testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Like John is just quoting this as if it's common knowledge. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Okay. It did happen before, but where did John ever mention this before? Like we're already in chapter 4. You don't see this in chapter 1 or 2 or 3 or any part of chapter 4. But remember how we spoke about the gospel of John as like the insider gospel, the gospel for the believers. It presumes that you've already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Right? And, and this specific reference is from the synoptic gospel accounts. Okay, so in Mark chapter 6 verse 4, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. And in Luke 4, verse 24, He said, Assuredly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. So, this is just like a little side note to keep in mind whenever John is referring to what Jesus mentioned, that although... He himself didn't record it, but he presumes that his readers are aware of what the other gospel authors mentioned in their accounts. Okay. All right. So how is it that he has no honor in his own country? Like what speaks for how he was not honored? Like how so? Yeah, well, he, yeah, he assumes that you, you already know. He assumes you already know that this was, like, common knowledge, right? But w- what tells you that he really wasn't honored? How so? Like, what proves to you that he's not honored? Because, like, to me, it's not like, you know, they're trying to stone him. It's not like there was a- any problem, Good. So, th- he was dishonored by their lack of faith. Okay? And the proof of that is what they really cared about. W- what is it that they really cared about here? Yeah, like the signs, the miracles. They wanted to see a magician, like an entertainer. They wanted proof. They wanted proof. That's, that's all they cared about. So, to Christ, that's not the honor that he deserves, right? And uh, in the previous verse that we mentioned in, in Luke chapter 4, the, the one that I mentioned was in verse 24, but before that in verse 23, he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we've heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. So they're always like asking for signs. They're always telling him to do more just to entertain them. Okay? And a lot of times we don't really care about Christ for who he is, but we just like we want to ask him to give us what we want, not necessarily to have him for himself. Joe Yes, because he didn't entrust himself to them in a way that like he didn't commit himself to a people that were not receptive with faith. Like when you entrust yourself to someone, you let your guard down, you just stay with them, but they didn't receive him in that way. So that's why he still had to work with them uh, with their doubts and their insecurities and their lack of faith. So they were only interested in the miracles. Like they wanted the gifts and the signs, not necessarily the gift giver himself, right? In the second chapter of John, verse 23, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Right, so all of these signs were basically like the proof for, for his divinity, which is important. Like, Sayyidina was actually just talking about that a couple of days ago. A lot of the miracles are for Christ to prove himself to people. Otherwise, like, what evidence do we have to, to go with? But whenever we're relying on the signs as, like, the, the only evidence, then God becomes nothing more than, like, a vending machine. Like, I just want this. I put in my prayers, and that's like the coins that I put in the machine, and I select what I want, and I say, give me this or give me that. I want this sign. I want this miracle. Uh, I want you to do this. I want you to help me with that. And God becomes nothing more than a vending machine for our spiritual life, which is a very superficial way to live. I think we all fall into that every once in a while, where it's just like, God, I want this. I want that. I need you to show me a sign that You know, you're actually present. And, you know, just because we don't see God, we start to doubt that, you know, He's actually there and working and He's present with us. Right? So, in terms of this honor, you know, which Christ is clearly telling them a prophet has no honor in his own country. Origen is saying that a prophet is only honored... When he's dead. again he relates back to the other prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and so on. He says what has happened in the case of the prophets is most paradoxical indeed. While alive, their fellow citizens dishonored them. But dead, they respect them by building and adorning their tombs. Okay, so I think we saw so many saints living this way. Going back to someone like St. Pope Carlos, he had no honor in his own country. And it's actually shocking how many people were not aware that everyone around him was trying to get rid of him. And they wanted to accuse him of all of these crimes, and they wanted to just get rid of this guy that they didn't like. And uh, if you just saw the recent movie from um, uh, St. Nectarius' life, Man of God, he lived a very similar way, right? where he was dishonored, and he was ridiculed, and he was mocked, and people were conspiring against him, just like people conspired against St. Pope Krillus. But it's not until all of these men offered their life as a real living sacrifice, that their faithfulness to God is vindicated. And they're finally honored. And now we have icons of people like St. Pope Krollos, And we honor them much more than we honored them during their life. And so I think that applies to the way that we walk through life. A lot of times we're seeking validation from people around us. We're seeking the honor from our family and friends, and maybe even people outside of the church, and we seek everyone's approval. And God is just telling us, look, I wasn't honored in my own country when I was here on earth. Like, stop trying to exhaust your energy and your effort, seeking the approval and the praise and the validation of other people. Because that's not going to happen here. It didn't happen for Christ. It didn't happen for the prophets. And it didn't happen for the saints just within our own time here. So we got to come to terms with the fact that if we're Christians, we're not going to be honored in our own country, whether that's Northridge or L.A. or whatever, your own country being the world in general, okay? And by the way, just last week we celebrated St. Macarius's commemoration and... uh, that's a perfect example of someone who, you know, just lived a life with absolutely no honor. And it is a story. Whenever the lady accused him of having her child, and then, you know, she was in labor pain for like four days until she finally said, "Okay, I made it all up." <laughs> and then she finally had the child. So the saints lived in this way. They didn't try to. Defend their honor or they didn't try to prove their own sanctity They just left it in God's hands and they, they accepted the cross and they embraced it with joy and with peace and with faith right, Any comments or questions about that? Yeah Exactly, yeah. It's just the reality of life from the first century until today. So that's why we got to just come to terms with it and embrace it. Like that's life. Embrace it and live with it joyfully and peacefully and faithfully. Alright, so the next section is a lot to talk about. So we'll read from... 46 to 54, okay? And then we'll go back and break it up together. So Jesus came, came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour When he got better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. Then he himself believed, and his whole household. This, again, is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea. Sorry, the screen cut off. But that's the very last verse in the chapter. Okay? So... There's a lot to unpack there. Um, What does this official want from Christ? What did he want? He wanted a miracle. Okay, good. So you're seeing, you're following the theme, right? And of course, it's coming from a good place, like his son is sick, right? He's about to die. So for him, it's not even just about like, I want to see a sign, but like, I care about my son, I want him to live. Okay? So what did he ask from Christ? Or better question is what did he demand from Christ? To heal his son. In what way? To come, down. come down and heal my son. Like come with me, you gotta go to my house. Come to my house and heal my son. Okay? So in a sense he's not just asking him to heal his son he's also telling him how to do it, okay? So he expected God to fit his agenda, right? Like his faith was confined by this expectation for Christ to heal his son in a very specific way. Come to my house and heal my son. Like this is how you're going to heal him. St. Gregory the Great says, recall what he was asking and you'll see that his faith was in doubt. He asked Jesus earnestly to come down and heal his son. He was asking for the physical presence of the Lord who is nowhere absent in his spirit. Because he was asking for Christ to be physically present, although there is no place that God is absent. He had little faith in one he thought he, that could heal unless he was physically present. If he had believed completely, he would have known that there was no place where God was not present. Okay? So he expected God to be confined to a specific location. That's so why he says, you got to come to my house. As if, like, that's the only way your grace will reach my son. Right? Like, in a sense, he put limits on Christ's work. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean that this man was completely devoid of faith because he traveled a long way to meet this man. He was coming from Capernaum. And some scholars say that's like a 15, 16-mile journey and others say it's like a 25-mile journey. Okay, so that's at least like a two, three-day journey for him to travel all this way and to go out on a limb to ask this man to heal your son. Okay? But if you look at his faith, when would you consider that he actually believed? uh, Exactly. It wasn't until the very end, if you look at verse 53... Someone read that for me, verse fifty-three. So, so the that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, "Your son lives," and he, believed. he himself believed, in his whole household. And he himself believed in his own household. So that was the moment that, like, he reached the pinnacle of his faith. And again, there was some faith there all along. I mean, just like a couple of verses earlier, if you look at verse 50, that he did believe as well. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. Right? But like, you see that there's a progression of faith. And I think this also reflects our own spiritual life. Where, like, we come to God, and, like, I know you can do this, but like you got to do this this way and that way because, I mean, that's probably the way it's going to have to get done. Otherwise, like it's nearly impossible. So let me tell you how. <laughs> and then Jesus tells us, okay, I'm going to direct you this way. And I'm like, okay, I believe, but then is it really going to work? And then a little bit later, we see the product of what he's telling us. Like, okay, <laughs> now I believe. It's it's a, a beautiful progression to teach us how we grow in our faith, which is totally fine. Because Jesus treated this man with so much love, with so much care, that he didn't rebuke him for what was lacking in his life. Right? But he did criticize him. Like, it's not like he... Rejected him because his faith was lacking, but he did give him a very firm response because he didn't mold himself into this nobleman's agenda. Like he didn't just follow what he wanted him to do. Okay, so Saint John Chrysostom says that the man says, "Sir, come down, or my child will die." It's as if he were saying that Jesus couldn't raise his son after death as though Jesus did not already know what state the child was in. It's for this reason that Christ rebukes him and touches his conscience in order to show that his miracles were done principally for the sake of the soul. For here, he heals the father who was sick in mind in no inferior way than the son in order to persuade us to listen to Him, not because of His miracles, but because of His teaching. Miracles are not only for the faithful, but for the unbelieving, and for people who are not as knowledgeable about the faith. Okay? Remember when I was in high school, and typically like when we're younger, we always want to see signs and miracles. You know, sometimes as we're older as well, but... We typically go through that phase when we're younger and anytime we hear about a sign or a miracle or like some icon is Dripping oil like where and like can I go visit and like All we care about is all of these signs and miracles So at that young age like during my teenage years, that was all that was on my mind. I remember Talking to Abuna Anthony, my father confession that um, He was telling me, a lot of people tell stories about seeing saints. But if it was like up to me and somebody tells me like, Abuna, St. Mary is appearing in a church nearby, I wouldn't run to go. Like, wait, what? What do you mean? But like, you're going to see St. Mary. (laughs) What do you mean you wouldn't run to go? Like, I would drop everything and race right over. Is like, what would that do for me? Like, I already believe in her, right? Like, I can talk to her here just as much as there, right? Like, the same way that we can talk to God. And I don't need to see Jesus and to have him appear to me like I have him on the altar. I have the Eucharist, his body and his blood. It sounds strange for us to say, we don't care for the signs, but that's what happens whenever our faith reaches that maturity. That we really don't care for the signs. And I, I, I noticed that in my own personal life. Like, I care less to see signs the more I grow. Okay? So, that's why Christ criticizes the people. Because this man, in a sense, embodies the general state of Galilee. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll by no means believe. So he's telling everyone how he feels about this man's doubt, or at least the limitations of his faith. So even though he cares for him, he he doesn't um, reject him, but he clearly rebukes the doubt. And I think that's where we have to find balance between our our doubts as opportunities to grow and our doubts as actual weaknesses in our faith. Because a lot of times we, we, we stray to one extreme or another. We say, doubts are fine and everybody has doubts. It's, it's not like a sin to doubt, which is true. And they are opportunities to grow, but you know we, we want to mature to the faith of abraham who didn't doubt when god told him to sacrifice your son like the the faith of st mary who didn't doubt like there is no place for doubt in the heart of the saints right but at the same time we can't vilify anyone who doubts or we can't make doubts like uh, sins or crimes because they they are a natural part of our progression, and they are opportunities for us to grow, and God uses that to to bring us closer to Him. Okay? So, uh, I think it just comes down to asking ourselves, what is the foundation of my faith? Is it the signs? Or is it my relationship with God that extends beyond what I see and what I feel? And when my prayers aren't answered And I don't feel God's presence as I'm talking to him. I don't see that my prayers are working. Do I continue with faith? Or do I just throw in the towel and say, well, there's nothing showing for the benefits or the results in my prayers. Do I just stop and call it a day? Or do I continue with faith? St. John Chrysostom says, what we're taught by these things we're taught not to wait for miracles or to seek promises of the power of God. I see a lot of people, even now, who become more pious when during the sufferings of a child or the sickness of a wife, they see any sign of relief. And yet, even if their child or wife didn't obtain that relief, they still should persist in giving thanks and in glorifying God. Because right-minded servants and those who love their master as they ought should run to him not only when they're pardoned, but also when chastised. For this too also shows the tender care of God, since those whom the Lord loves, he also chastens. So the foundation of our faith is not just like the rewards and the blessings and the signs and the miracles, but our faith in God's love and his goodness as invisible and as intangible as that may be. Right, we love God for who He is, not for what He gives us, okay? Any comments or questions as we continue along in this passage, okay, so he heals this son through the healing of the Father, and I think that's a very unique way of addressing the whole situation it's almost like it's like there's like a 2 for 1 special <laughs> and the son seems to be the patient but christ doesn't overlook the disease in the father as well and in a sense that's his focus even more than the sickness of the son and that's why he addresses the father's doubt in a way that heals him, and by healing the father, he also heals the son. And, and I think that speaks a lot for families. Like, whenever the father is in line, the, the mom is in line, the parents are living a life of faith, it always translates to the children. Right? So that's why he doesn't, like, dissociate the two. Like, the families are always walking together towards Christ. We see that in marriages. If the husband is walking towards God, the wife is walking towards God, and vice versa as well. Okay? So, St. Cyril says, the one command of the Savior heals the two souls. In the official, the Savior's command brings about unexpected faith, even as it also rescues the child from bodily death. It's difficult to say which is healed first, but... I suppose both are healed simultaneously. It's a beautiful way to, to think about it. And he heals the, the, this illness in, in the Father. And we can't call it an illness. Our doubts are illnesses. By a very challenging way. Christ tells him, go your way, your son lives. Right? So like I would imagine the man is thinking... What do you mean go your way? Like, but first you got to come and heal him so I can go back to to my house. Like, what do you mean go back on your way? Like, you have to come and heal him and then he'll be fine. (laughs) So, in a sense, like, he challenges him to step outside of his own limited mind. Right? Like, to step outside of his own logic, his own rationale. And in a sense he like he did the exact opposite of what this man was expecting like he's like oh you want to go this way okay i'm going to take you the exact opposite way for you, for you to see that my grace works beyond your conception okay and it's not just like based on what we expect to see so what ultimately like establishes his faith when you look at This progression, as as we just spoke about, like how this man went from a little bit of doubt and then he accepted what God said, and then finally he's at this climax of his faith. What is it that like opens the door for the perfection of his faith? Something very simple. Okay, his household believed. Right after he did something. Like, what did he do? Okay, that was definitely like the proof. For him, okay, now I get the connection. That's exactly when Jesus said the words. Right, but, again, he had to do something. He believed like, But what did he do? What goes to show his belief his faith he you were just gonna say he he left he just obeyed like that's as simple as it gets like there is no faith without obedience because he's expecting God to work one way Christ comes and he tells him something completely different but he just says okay (laughs) He obeys. He says, "Go back home. <laughs> Your son lives." And then the very next line, and he went his way. That right there is faith in action. The obedience is always the gateway for our faith to grow. Like if if you're not putting the commandments in action, your trust in the power of the commandments and the grace that comes from following God will never grow. But when you hear words like, forgive those who offend you, love your enemies, you say, okay, I'm going to try it. You obey, you follow it, and then all of a sudden you're like, wait, now I believe in this commandment. I believe that this actually works. I can trust God and his guidance because I actually put it in action. Otherwise, I'd never actually practice the faith. So unless I'm actually implementing what God is telling me, my faith never grows. It's nothing more than just theory. Okay? Okay. Any comments or questions there? I'm with you. I, I think that's the hardest part. Because a lot of times, obedience just has to come from our, our knowledge of God. Like we know that He's good and that He loves us. And that alone is enough to to drive our obedience. And like, imagine what happened to Abraham's faith. Whenever you think of his ultimate trial, when he had to offer Isaac, a lot of people forget that Like, he reached a level of maturity much prior to this event. Like, don't forget that he already had to throw out his firstborn son, which was Ishmael. Every time God tells him to do something, he's like, okay. Then what happens after every obedience? He sees God working, and he sees the fruit of obedience. And that experience translates into more faith. You obey, you see the fruit of obedience, and that further convicts you to hold on to God even harder. That's why when God told him to offer Isaac, he rose early in the morning the very next day. Like there wasn't even a delay. Like he didn't say, well, you know, give me a few minutes to just spend some time with my son. Or like he didn't drag himself. But like it was almost easy for Abraham. Because his prior obedience kept Serving as fuel for his faith. Okay? So, a a, a lot of times we we think that it's backwards. That like, I can't possibly obey God unless I have all of this faith. Right? But, your faith comes as a product of your obedience whenever you just give God a chance. And then you taste the fruit of obedience and then your faith grows. Because then, next time there's going to be a situation that doesn't make sense to you. And if your obedience just depends on your logic, your obedience will be very limited. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. Now, another reflection on why he refused to to go back home with him, aside from how this just challenges him and like it opposes his expectations and and, like uh, prompts him to consider the the grace and the power of God in a way beyond his own logic. You see that Christ treated him in a different way in contrast to the way that he treated uh, another official, which actually a lot of people confuse between uh, these two stories. But if you remember in Matthew chapter 8, there's a very similar story where there is an official and uh, his servant is, uh, is sick. And he goes to him and he says, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Right? So in this case... He went to his home, right? Why the difference? I'm sure we can speculate a lot, but what are your thoughts? Yes, he doesn't demand. It's just like St. Mary in the wedding of Cana and Galilee. They have no wine. I know you're going to solve it in the way that you see fit. So this centurion just tells him, my servant is paralyzed. He's sick. And then whenever he tells him, I'll come to your house, what does he say? No. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, you just say a word like, <laughs> your word will reach my house. You don't need to physically come to my home. Your word will reach my servant. Right? Yeah, We could also see that he treats these prestigious figures in a different way, although they have the exact same type of position. Maybe they're not the exact same rank, but they're both prestigious figures. Right? One, one is an official, one is a nobleman. But one, he says, go your way, your son lives, like he refuses to go to his house. Whereas the other one, he decides to go to his house. And just from this alone, you see how Christ has no bias. right? It's not like he gives a certain position a greater favor, and the inferior positions he rejects, or that he just opposes people that are in a different class. Because he didn't care about their class. He didn't care about their position. He didn't care about their prestigious title. He just looked at their heart. And so for one, he said, go your way. And for the other one, he said, I will come. You see what I mean? Even though they have a similar social class. So... This is how we have to interact with people. Not to have any sort of bias or favoritism towards people depending on their position or their class or their prestige. Jesus never cared about the, the superficial look or the title. like He just treated every situation based on the person's needs, based on the heart of the individual, right? Okay, so we'll conclude this chapter with just a a reflection to wrap it all together, okay? So I'll ask you just this question to conclude. Why do we have this specific passage with healing the nobleman's son, after the events in Samaria, what's the parallel? Like what does St. John really want to highlight from this juxtaposition with the story of the Samaritans and then the people in Galilee? Like, What do you want to walk away with from all of this? I think that's pretty much it. So he just wants to highlight the, the reality of faith as a, a conviction and a commitment to God regardless of what we see, regardless of what we hear, regardless of what the senses perceive. And that's why he puts these two passages right next to each other. The Samaritans... Did not see a single sign, and like they put the Galileans to shame, and these are the Gentiles, but the Jews in Galilee had all of these signs, but they still don 't want to believe, and you can speculate why they don 't want to believe, and maybe there there are several reasons, maybe they know that. To believe is to commit to God, and that's going to require a lot of work. And I think we fall into that too whenever, uh, I don't really want to believe in this because it's going to require that I actually submit to it and I follow it. Like a lot of people say, um, I don't really believe in confessing to a priest. Um, You know, I, I don't believe it's like a real thing that you have to do. I'm like, okay, well... What if I prove to you that there is substantial evidence that every single Christian did this from day one, and it's indisputable? Will you just do it? Like, uh, well, I mean, it depends, and like, now to start to like backpedal and <laughs> try to find a way out of it, because a lot of times we know that believing requires work, and so it's easier to just reject. The the I- idea or the the path that we're called to walk or to believe in, because we don't want to put in the work. So then we just say, "Oh, I think that's part of the the problem with the Galileans here." But at the end of the day, we want to just believe in God for who He is and follow the guidelines that He gave us, the Scriptures, the Commandments the guidance of the church whether we agree with it or not whether we understand it with our limited minds or not whether it makes sense or not and we ask questions like, like Sayyidina was just telling us a couple of days ago ask why and try to understand and try to learn but at the end of the day if your faith just depends on your understanding and all of the signs then you'll never truly grow okay so I'll just conclude with this uh, quick little quote from St. John Chrysostom. He says, the evangelist didn't write the words, this is the second sign, without purpose. He wanted to increase our astonishment at the Samaritans by indicating that even when the second sign was accomplished, those who saw it didn't reach the elevation of those who did not see it. Right. So it's almost like saying... They saw twice as much as anybody else. So you should be even more astonished at the faith of the Samaritans. So he wants to highlight how much the the faith of the Samaritans served as like the, the real foundation of their relationship with God and it didn't depend on any signs or miracles. Okay?